Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming American filmmaker Patrick Creedon, who is primarily known for his work in documentaries. His first film, Wordplay, profiled the New York Times crossword editor Will Shorts and premiered at the 2006 Sundance Film Festival. Then in 2016, Patrick directed ESPN's 30 for 30 film Catholics First Convicts about the October 15, 1988 Notre Dame-Miami football game. In this episode, we discuss Patrick's latest film, The Loyola Project, about the historic 1963 Loyola Ramblers men's basketball national championship team and the racial barriers that they faced and overcame on their incredible journey. Listeners, I love this film. I enjoyed the way that Patrick weaves together actual footage and modern-day interviews to tell this captivating story which continues to provide inspiration in the fight for equality. You can stream The Loyola Project on Paramount+, Plus, or if you're interested in viewing the film and don't have that streaming service, reach out to me and we will get you the link to view the film. Please enjoy. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited to have this conversation. I absolutely loved your latest film, The Loyola Project, and we'll definitely dive into that later on in today's episode. But first... When I was preparing for this interview and I was doing some research, I found out that you and I both modeled for Sears when we were younger. Did that experience impact your interest in filmmaking at all? Yeah, I grew up. It's great to be here, Mallory. Thank you for having me. Um, I grew up in Chicago. Um, I had three other siblings, a brother and two sisters, and we... um, my my mom had this crazy idea that it would might be fun for us to try modeling and acting as kids. And she was totally right. It was totally fun. We had a great time doing it. There was there was no pressure. Um, if we didn't want to do it, we didn't have to do it. But we ended up meeting all these famous Chicagoans like Walter Payton and uh, Harry Carey and like all these sort of famous sports folks and celebrity folks. And we did a lot of modeling. We did like Sears catalogs and McDonald's commercials and things like that. We did. We also did. Um, we were in a couple of movies as kids. And uh, my brother was actually in the movie Ordinary People. He had a small part in Ordinary People. Um, and, you know, all the while as a kid, it's not that I necessarily wanted. I didn't really want to be an actor as, a, as an adult because I could tell that that would be a very challenging career choice. Um but I, I really fell in love with this idea of being a filmmaker and being a storyteller. So I'm I'm really lucky that I was exposed to that as a kid. Um, my mom and dad made it really fun for us. Um, and my siblings and I had a great time doing it. So it was very lucky that, that it was something that I was asked to do. And it's been it's been a great experience for us. When you think about the power of like a narrative film, films such as Goodfellas or Schindler's List, those that tell really captivating stories is that what led you to wanting to make film that really showcase powerful stories but in a real capacity i think if if there was one really important motivation for me or inspiration when i was younger it's probably the same as anyone which is if you really feel a strong connection to what somebody's doing and so there's a lot of movies. We've all seen lots of movies. We've all seen lots of TV shows. It's very rare that one of them like really, really hits you hard um, in a in a really powerful and impactful way. And so, I mean, my brother, like I said, my brother was in in the, in the movie Ordinary People, which if, if if for those who haven't seen that film, it it won the Best Picture that year. It's an Academy Award winning film. I think it won four Oscars that year. Best Director for Robert Redford, Best Movie, Timothy Hutton won uh, for Best Supporting Actor. I mean, it's an incredible film. It's a small film, too. No special effects, nothing fancy. But it is an extremely powerful and moving story about a family dealing with a loss in their family. And it's incredible. It's, I mean, in fact, when (laughs) my brother was in the film, and then within a year or two after being in it, they were teaching that film in our high school. 
So my brother was in a class where he was studying ordinary people. I mean, that that which is which was just a strange thing that happened, but but a strange phenomenon to actually be studying a film that you're in. Uh, point is, it's like I think really really good storytellers, really good filmmakers, really good writers are an incredible inspiration for someone who who wants to pursue that field. And um and that's certainly what we try to do. We 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 try to pick stories that are really personal to us that we feel like we have some direct connection to. And and we also we always, you know, our our main objective is to tell the story in a way that resonates with the subjects. That's a really difficult thing to do. But if someone trusts you with their story, you don't just want to tell it accurately and and do a good job with it, so to speak. You want to take their story and elevate it. You want to you want to find things in their story that they maybe hadn't even thought of. You know, if if your subjects can see their own story from a brand new perspective and they can learn about themselves through your own film, that that's certainly what we try to do when we take on a project. And when you say we, for the listeners, you and your wife are partners. You have your own production company. You guys work together. Sometimes it seems like you guys have done films a little bit separately, but you guys are a unit. And your first film that you guys did together was uh, in 2006. It was premiered at Sundance and it was Wordplay. Can you talk to us about that film? Yeah, my wife and I are a filmmaking team. I'm a director. She's a producer. Um, but I mean, we're very much, it's a collaboration. We, we, we're teammates and, and 50, 50 partners uh, in our, in the stories that we tell. Um, and, um, you know, we have a, we have an office in our house. Um, when we have bigger productions going on, we will oftentimes get an office in the neighborhood that's bigger to accommodate our team. But, you know, for the most part, we, we work at home and we're a filmmaking team and, I mean, I really love it. I, I love what we do. I still can't believe that I actually am able to eke out a living uh, as a documentary filmmaker um, just because I enjoy it so much. And and to me, in, in some ways, this is sort of a dream job for us. Um, we we had been working for, for quite a long time um, out here in Los Angeles. We're from Chicago originally, but we both moved to L.A., and we met out here. I had been working as a freelance cameraman. Christine had been working as a freelance producer. But in the back of our minds, it was always like, you know, someday we're going to do our own thing. And we both loved the New York Times crossword puzzle. We enjoyed solving it together. Uh, and I, I, one year I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get her for a Christmas present. I'm going to get her a, a documentary film about Will Shorts, who is the guy who edits the New York Times crossword puzzle. And no one had made that movie. And I said, that's that's it. We're going to make that movie. We were so excited. We told one of our friends about this new project we were going to do. And he looked at us and said, that is the worst idea I've ever heard. Nobody is going to want to watch a documentary film about crossword puzzles. Um, and that made us want to do it even more. Then we were like, oh, yeah, we're going to show you. And the movie did did amazingly well. It, it, it premiered at Sundance. There was a big bidding war for the film at Sundance. It went out that later on that summer in over 500 movie theaters, which is a lot of movie theaters for a documentary that you made in your spare bedroom. Uh, and it was just incredibly successful. And that was really the beginning of our filmmaking career. We we'd been doing we'd been working in the film business for a long time, but that was our first film, and really we never looked back. That that was sort of the beginning of of the road that we're on today. So preparing for this interview, I actually watched a few of your films besides the one that we're really going to talk about today. But one of the ones I watched uh, this previous weekend was the 30 for 30 Catholics first convicts. And what I thought was so interesting is I know you and your family go back generations with Notre Dame, but what was that like for you? Not only wanting to tell the story and it's a story that you were very personally close with, I understand, mm -hmm. but also knowing the fan base and knowing the importance around not only the 30 for 30 brand, but also what those films really represent. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we didn't want to screw it up. That was really our first, you know, 
objective when we started. Thirty for Thirty is a series. It's a, it's a series that's been on ESPN now for over ten years, um, and it's incredible. They've won Peabody Awards. They've won Emmy Awards. They have won. Uh, they won an Academy Award uh, with their film about O.J. Simpson. I mean, they're like one of the best documentary brands in 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 the business. And they reached out to us and said, would you be interested in telling the story about um, the Notre Dame-Miami college football rivalry? You know, we know you went to Notre Dame and, and maybe this might be something you'd want to do. What they didn't know is that I lived that story. I mean, I, I was right in the middle of that story. Uh, that game took place during my senior year at Notre Dame. The quarterback was my next door neighbor in the dorm. Um, the guy who made this really controversial t-shirt that said Catholics versus convicts on it, he was my best friend. We went to high school together. He was also my roommate at Notre Dame. So I was able to tell that story from a, from firsthand experience. Um, and it was it was wonderful. I mean, I, I, I loved it. I reconnected with my classmates. The story, there was one thing about the story that was very difficult, which is that my best friend also happened to be an incredible basketball player. And his lifelong dream, his lifelong dream was to become the walk-on for Notre Dame's basketball team, which he was able to do. But because of the t-shirts and because he had been told not to be running a t-shirt business out of his dorm room, he had been told that multiple times, um, that t-shirt ended up being the reason why he was kicked off the basketball team. So it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's about college football. It's about life in the eighties. Um, but it's also, it's just a very personal story about me and, and my best friend and this thing that we all experienced our senior year in college. So it was, we loved it. I, I love that film. I'm very proud of that film. And, um, and I'm glad we were able to do it because we learned a lot about, we learned a lot about that experience by going back and retelling that story. When you got the call, did you call your best friend and say, I have this opportunity. I'm going to do this. There's a possibility that these t-shirts are going to be part of the narrative as an adult now who maybe you have a career or family. How do you feel about that? Was that a conversation you needed to have? Well, yeah. I mean, it wasn't that there was a possibility that the t-shirt was going to be mentioned in the film it was the the movie in a way was about the t-shirt and i know for people listening to this you're like that's crazy but the thing is in 1988 the two best teams in college football were notre dame and miami and there there could not be two more different cultures uh, and stereotypes i would say than notre dame the catholic school from up north um, um, you know, upper class, very, I hate to say it, but very white. Notre Dame is sort of a white student body. And Notre Dame is very old fashioned. And, and um, I think in part because it's Catholic and because for a lot, for a variety of reasons, it's not nearly as diverse a campus as Miami. The University of Miami is in Miami. It, it it's very diverse. Um, it also happens to be a private school and it's an expensive school. But Miami and Miami's football team in the 1980s, they prided themselves on being the bad boys of college football. Um, they wore army fatigues when they when they got off the plane. They would pick fights with the opponents. There were these big brawls that happened um, during games. And it was always like these Miami guys. I mean, they are, they embraced this bad boy culture and in fact they were kind of living it and the 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 summer before this big showdown this big game that's that we that the movie is about the summer before that happened two student athletes from miami were arrested one of them was arrested for selling cocaine and one of them was arrested for uh stealing a car i believe is what it was so, you know, these were not like small infractions. I mean, they were arrested and I believe they both did time for their offenses. So this idea of the convicts was not something that was created out of thin air. This was this was really a, a persona that they that they nurtured 
And, and they used that bad boy image to help them win football games. At the same time, Notre Dame was always trying, always tries to be the opposite of that. It tries to be, it tries to take a moral higher, uh, morally high ground. Let's say Notre Dame is is a is a community that that strives for social justice and and doing the right thing and 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 trying to be proud of your accomplishments, et cetera. So these two teams colliding on the football field was it was insane. I mean, it was the biggest game of the year by far. And my friend and one of his buddies they came up with this idea of doing a t-shirt and putting the words Catholics versus convicts on that shirt. Well, it just blew up. I mean, it was, everyone was talking about it. It was in the USA Today. It was in Sports Illustrated. It was, it was like, oh my God, it just, it just added hype to the game. And there was, now there was some controversy to it. There was an edge to it. There was some name calling happening. Um, And that's really what the movie ended up being about. It, It ended up being about these two cultures colliding um and right there in the middle of it was my best friend and this t-shirt that he had printed that became wildly successful and was also pretty controversial um that's what the story was and it was it was it was really fun it it, it i i can say because i've talked to all the people who have been in it or most of the people who appeared in the film they love it. The the Miami people love the movie as much as the Notre Dame people do. It, it, it was a way to look at it objectively to celebrate all those things we love about college football. And I think there was also some there was some genuine remorse from the guys who made the T-shirts that were like, you know, that was kind of not cool. That was kind of a low blow. And and um, and and if they had to do it all over again, they probably uh, would not have done that. Then the film that I really want to dive into is your most recent project, The Loyola Project. And Mm -hmm. that film I watched twice. First time I watched it was just to understand what the film was about. But then the second time I really watched it, it was with a different lens, now knowing the story and looking for those smaller details. And for listeners who are not aware of what the film's about, it's really around the 1963 Loyola team and really focusing on the Iron Five. And that was the last time that Loyola won the March Madness tournament. And I think that the story kind of maybe reappeared after that 2018 run when they made it to the final four, when it was like, well, anytime a team gets to that, point in the tournament I feel like they always go well when was the last time they were here and you start to look back at history there's a lot of things in the film that shocked me I wish that I had people around me almost in a film class where after I watched it I could say let's talk about it did the coach Mm. do the right thing how could this have happened there was a lot of questions that came up and I know that the film has been viewed and shown on college campuses across the country hoping for those conversations to take place. But would Mm. you mind just kind of giving an overview about what you wanted the film to really focus on? And then we'll dive into some uh, more detailed questions. Sure, sure. And the film is called The Loyola Project. It's streaming on Paramount+. And if any of your listeners don't have Paramount+, Plus or they really want to see it, they just have to shoot you a note and we can provide them with a link. Um, we, we love that film. We love sharing it with people. Gosh, where to even begin? Um, you know, back in 2019, um, I got a text. It was a friend of a friend. So it was someone I didn't know, but he knew a friend of mine and he knew that I had done Catholics versus convicts. And he said, I I have an idea for you. And I'd, I'd love to pitch you this idea for a story. And, you know, we get, we get those emails and requests from time to time. They normally don't really pan out, which is fine. Um, but um, long story short, um, this guy, Corey McQuaid, um, pitched me this idea, and I was really intrigued by it, mainly because this was a story about Loyola basketball that I had never heard. You know, I'm from Chicago. I, I'm a big sports fan. I just didn't know anything about this team. For the most part, the team, people were starting to forget about them because it happened in 1963. is a long time ago. Um, but then in 2018, Loyola made it to this final four during March Madness. That was the team that had Sister Jean, the 99-year-old nun. She's now 103, going strong. Um, but she was the 99-year-old um, team chaplain. 
cheering from the sidelines. And they were the perfect Cinderella team that year. Nobody expected them to go to the final four. They were in a, they were a number 11 seed in the March Madness tournament. And because they did so well that season, people started revisiting 1963 and what that team had done. Um, Basically, you know, it's it was it's really ultimately a story about breaking down the color barriers that existed around college basketball. Um, believe it or not, in 1963, <clears throat> there was this unwritten rule amongst college basketball coaches, and 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 I think the schools, you know, embraced this and and made sure that they honored it, which is kind of crazy. But the idea was that you could have three black players on the court at one time, but you couldn't have four, which is just crazy. And it's like, what? You know, I mean, it's 1963. It's 60 years ago. But even still, it's still shocking when you think that that rule existed. And the rule, not to justify it, because I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to defend it, but what I'm the reason the rule was in place is that colleges historically had been for white people and there just were not a lot of black students. There were not a lot of black um, professors, unless we're talking about HBCUs, like historically black colleges and universities. Obviously it was different on those campuses, but for the big state schools and the big private schools and sort of the famous schools that you hear about, um that had been around for a long long time there was there was a feeling that the sports teams and the basketball teams should reflect the student body and that by having four black people on the court instead of three that somehow went too far well the coach at Loyola was like that's crazy that's that's a really dumb rule I'm going to play my best players and in 1963, he had four, four black starters on his team. We basically, the movie is just about that season. It's about being with those athletes. It's about being on the road trips with them. It's about being in their dorm rooms. It's like, what was it like to actually live and play on that team? And the thing that we did with the movie, which I think really makes the movie much better than it would have been otherwise, is we asked one of the players from the 2018 team, a guy named Lucas Williamson. He was a freshman on the 2018 team. He ended up being the captain of the team a couple of years later. Um, we asked Lucas to narrate the film and to be one of the co-writers of the film. And so the movie, the story is really told from Lucas's perspective. And I think that's really important. Otherwise, the movie would have been told from my perspective. I have a very different perspective on that team than Lucas. Lucas played on the team. Lucas went to the Final Four. Lucas was a captain of the team. Lucas is also a young man of color. He's black. For all those reasons and a million others, we thought the story should be told from his perspective. And we're going to help him write the narration, and we're going to do the. We're going to do a lot of the the heavy lifting when it comes to archival work and research and doing interviews. But at the end of the day, the entire story is really filtered through Lucas. When there's opinions about the coach, when there's opinions about uh, the governor of Mississippi, let's say, those opinions are Lucas's. It's just much better that way. You know, we all have blind spots, including Lucas. Lucas has his own blind spots. But together, we made a much better story. And the blind spots that Lucas has didn't affect the story in a negative way. The blind spots that I have as a middle-aged white man would, would not have allowed us to tell the story in as rich a way. So it was a really, it was a really good experience for us as a team. We all love Lucas. I've, I've grown very close to him. And, um, and I think that, it's it's one of the reasons the movie is doing so well and so many people have seen it and so many people are moved by it because well, of Lucas's role in the production. Well, you answered one of my questions, which was why was it so important for him to narrate it? Because as you mentioned, it wasn't going to be as authentic if you were narrating it. And my other question yeah. kind of following up was, did you ever question yourself if you were the right person to direct this film given Definitely. that this yeah. is a film that 
maybe on the surface is about basketball, but when you really watch it, it is about what was happening in America before the civil rights act of 1964. And definitely, I mean, we had a lot of conversations about this when, when, um, when we were making the film and, and I definitely had some, some self doubt as to whether or not I was the right person to do this story. I think what was tricky was um, it's funny because so many things changed in a short amount of time. But in 2019, I agreed to make this film. By 2020, in the summer of 2020, and and the murder of George Floyd and the conversations that we were having, not only in our country, but in our industry, um, as far as what stories are being told and who's telling those stories, for all those reasons, during the production of this film, we really, we we wanted to tell the story as well as we could. We wanted to do give the, you know, do justice to the telling of the story. And at the same time, we, we, like I mentioned before, like we were aware of our own blind spots, my own blind spots. And Lucas ended up being the member of the team that helped us with, with some of those challenges. So it, it, um, the thing is, I I asked I asked a a, um, a a colleague of ours, you know, I asked her that question um, about the fact that I'm the director of the film and and um, and that I had some I had some doubts about that, some reservations. And she said, you know, the thing is, I'll never forget what she said. She said, you know, Lucas is kind of walking in their footsteps. Those guys who played for Loyola in 1963, he is living in those same dorms. He is playing on that same campus. He is wearing the same jersey. So how could you not have him be a central to the storytelling team? It's a perfect fit. And he did an amazing job as a narrator and as one of the writers of the film. At the same time, Lucas is not a filmmaker, my expertise and my experience brought a lot to the table, but it didn't bring everything to the table. And at the end of the day, filmmaking is a really collaborative art. And we we ended up putting the right team together to tell that story. And it, it just made a huge difference. It, it, it would have been a very different film if, if I didn't direct it. And it would have been a very different film if Lucas didn't write it and narrate it. And together we were a good team. And I think that's, that's, really key to making a good movie coach ireland who was the coach during uh that season i felt a lot of different things at some Mm -hmm. points i was like oh he's you know concerned about his players but then at the same time when you guys talk about that trip when they're in new orleans or um you know hiding the hate mail i was like okay but yet his i believe it's his daughter still won't let those letters be shown to the public. Mm. It was kind of hard for me internally. I battled with, was he doing the right thing or could he have done more? Or was it that Mm. the time period that he did as much as he could without overstepping? But if you're leading by example, shouldn't you overstep and do what's right? It was this back and forth ping pong. I felt as I was watching the film did you guys start to have those conversations with Lucas or with even the former players that were featured in the film? Did you ever ask them what their thoughts were? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Coach Ireland was, according to Ron Miller, who played on the team, he was the most complicated person he's ever known in his life. On the one hand, they are all, all the players on that 1963 team, they are all grateful to him that he recruited them and that they played on that team and that he coached them to a national championship. None of those things can be taken away from Coach Ireland. That's part of his legacy. What's also really problematic about Coach Ireland is, like you mentioned the letters, um, when the team was heading toward the postseason. They were ranked number two in the country. There was a good chance, hey, these guys might win the tournament. And by the way, they have four black players on their team. 
that's crazy. You know, I can't believe the coach is doing that. Once they kind of reached a certain level of, there was a certain level of awareness about that team and what they were doing, they started receiving a tremendous amount of hate mail. And what happened with the hate mail is really problematic. Um, the, the, the first, the first letter came in, it, it went to Jerry Harkness's dorm room. It was addressed to Jerry Harkness, the captain of the team who's black. And it was a death threat. It said, if you come down here to, to Mississippi, you know, you're, you're not going to go back alive. It was really scary. It was, and, and, and Jerry was really traumatized by this. He called the coach. He told him what he had received and the coach stepped in and told the mailman on campus, I don't want any more mail going to the players. Okay. That I can, I kind of can understand that in a way, like the coach doesn't want them to be distracted. The coach doesn't want them to feel threatened. It's a security issue. hundred percent. Well, so that's, that's what I was going to get to next. The, the, the fact that he was intercepting the mail, the players don't have a problem with that. What they have a problem with is 60 years later, they still have never even seen that mail. That's one thing that that's strange that the family who has all the mail has never shared that mail with the players. That's just strange. Um, I don't understand their thinking on that. But furthermore, what's even more problematic is that the coach and his family read all the mail. He took it home. They read it at home. They were aware of the threats. They were aware that there were these crazy people out there who who wanted to harm these players and were threatening to harm them. But the players weren't aware of that. They didn't know the extent of, of how serious these threats were. And the coach ended up hiring security guards to protect his daughters who were students at Loyola, but he didn't do anything to protect the players. You can't defend that. It's just awful that he did that. So again, there's things that he did that the coaches are grateful for. There are things that he did that the that the players feel were horrible. They 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 so they it's it's a real love-hate relationship, frankly, with their coach. And it remains that way today. The coach is long since deceased. Many of the players have passed away, but there's some really hard feelings between the players and the coach that they played for. And frankly, that's passed on now to the family. The Ireland family has some hard feelings about some of the players who have spoken out about the coach and vice versa. And, you know, it's, um, it's just unsettling is what it is. There was one final piece to this, which I'll just add is that, is that what many of the players really resented and they resent to this day the ones who are still alive they resented the fact that after coach ireland won the national championship and long after he retired he was very good at sort of tooting his own horn and saying you know i was a real civil rights leader and i was a real groundbreaker and and you know i i deserve a lot of credit for what i did um and yet the players just they don't see it that way what they see is a guy who was trying to keep his job. He, he they were losing before he started playing so many black players. They were losing and he and he was in in danger of losing his job. So was he trying to be a civil rights hero? Uh maybe, I doubt it. I think what he was trying to do was he was trying to keep his job. And it was a very convenient thing years down the road for him to pat himself on the back for this thing that he had done that seemed like it was really magnanimous and that he was doing the right thing. When at the end of the day, it really feels like he was simply trying to win games, which that was his job. He was the coach. He was, he was paid to win basketball games and that's what he did. I don't think the civil rights piece of it. I mean, he knew people were criticizing him. People were sending hateful letters to him you know, he was under the gun in the same way that the players were, but I, I think he was doing it more than anything just to keep his job. So it's, it's a very, it's a very complicated story, 
um, it's why we love it's why we love showing it, and it's why we love talking about it because the 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 issues in the film and the the nuances of the film they resonate today. It's the same sort of thing that we deal with today, sixty years later. Well, what bothered me is when the players were talking about when he was recruiting them, he didn't speak to the players. He spoke to the parents and Mm. I don't have any kids, but what came to mind is how could you tell the parents that their child's going to be taken care of at this university? Mm. He'll be their coach. He'll be able to be there. And you're getting these letters and you aren't doing anything to protect the kids that you talk to their parents saying, I got them when they leave New York or leave wherever they are to come to Chicago. That was something that crossed my mind. And then the other aspect is, I believe stealing other people's mail is a federal crime. So I'm still surprised that they wouldn't give the mail back and that when you're watching his daughter hold the, the envelope that has the mail in it, and she's like, this is one of three. I'm like, that's not something to be proud of. You should, if you want people to learn from these experiences, you need to show what people were like. I, It's like hiding part of history that you would think would make the world a better place or at mm-hmm. least more knowledgeable or we can learn from it by showing this evidence or bearing yeah. witness. It, it, it's exactly what it is. It's evidence. It's, it's, it's. The, I mean, I've seen the mail, which is which is really crazy. I've seen the mail and I didn't play on the team. The mail wasn't addressed to me. When I interviewed his daughter in her home, I told her, I said, a lot of the players don't think there was mail. There may have been one or two pieces of mail that went to Jerry Harkness and that the rest of the, the, rest of the mail was made up by your father. And she said, it's not true. I'll show them to you. She walked me down the hallway and she showed me the mail. And there's probably about 500 pieces of mail Um that were written. I should say not all of it was hate mail. Uh, quite a bit of the mail was in support of the coach. So it wasn't, it wasn't all bad, but I mean, there's a lot of mail. There's like a stack of mail. Um, most of it is negative. Most of it is criticizing him for playing for black athletes. Some of them criticized him for playing any black athletes. Uh, I mean, it was, it was, it was just, it was crazy. It was, it was, uh, it was, it was just a different time. It was unacceptable for um, for some people that there were black athletes or that there were so many black athletes on this team. Um, but it's um, you're right. I mean, it is against the law. They have they are in possession of of, of some of the players' mail, and they want their mail. It's yeah. it's, it's sixty years later. Like yeah, we, the they still want their mail, and there's no reason why you still have it. I. At the end of the day, um, I actually think that because they won't share the mail and they refuse to share the mail, in a weird way, I think that makes the story more interesting, frankly. It's that sort of belligerence and that sort of digging in and 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 holding your ground, let's say, you know, this is this this is my dad's mail and he was the coach and and he's he he and 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 the rest of us know what's best, so we're going to hang on to this mail. And it's like, it's so insane to me. It's like you are in something, you are in possession of something that's mine, and you won't give it to me because you think you know what's best for me. It's totally crazy. And maybe um, it's like overthinking it, but I'm like, you're holding power again over these 100%. players years 100%. later, and it's like you as the white coach feels like you know what's best for your black players. And it's this fucked up power dynamic still yeah. are adults and you're still, you're not realizing that you're doing that. Or maybe you are, I don't know. Well, the thing is coach Ireland's daughter, she harbors some very hard feelings to some of the players who have criticized the coach and who have been outspoken about the coach and some of the choices he made. And yet look at, look at what they're doing with the mail. Look at how they're handling that part of the story. No wonder there are players who despise their coach and frankly, who have very hard feelings toward the Ireland family. Look at their behavior. Like, why would they expect anyone to feel differently? So it's it's a very strange, it, it actually, if you take a step back, 
little further and and just try to look at it from you know a distance it actually is a really interesting way of looking at the 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 coach athlete relationship and it's it's worth pointing out that the team that Loyola beat to win the national championship they also had several black players on their team um so he wasn't the only coach in in the country who was doing this he was one of the first to do it but he wasn't the only coach that was playing multiple black players on his team and the other team cincinnati those players the black kids and the white kids they loved their coach it, it they they adored him um um they were devastated when he passed away um years later and so it's just an interesting there's an interesting dynamic that 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 exists between a coach who demands the best and his or her players and some people are able to do that in a way um, that that um, creates respect and mutual admiration, and some people are not. Coach Ireland was not. He he was not someone who was well loved by his players. Uh, he frankly had a bad falling out with the school when he left. So Coach Ireland was just not somebody. He was he was more of a loner. Um, you cannot take away uh, from him the fact that he won a national championship. You cannot take away from him the fact that he helped break down the color barriers in college basketball. Um, but at the same time, um, he was not a well-liked person by his players and those around him. And that, that's just, that's just what all of our research shows. Um, so in that sense, it's, um, there's a, there's a, there's a bittersweet component to our story. They, 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 they won the national championship and they've spent the rest of their lives celebrating that. Um, but getting there was difficult and there were, there were some hard feelings created along the way. Well, one last thing I'll mention that I thought was unnerving is that he would play those iron five, the five starters mm. every minute through dislocated shoulders, through injury, yeah. through everything. And I just, it didn't sit well. I've been on sports teams and when you're injured, the coach is supposed to realize, Hey, it's not worth injuring them even more. Let me put someone else in, but he was so driven probably to keep his job and to win that he was running these players literally to the ground. And especially Uh, the amount of minutes they were playing. I think the final game went into overtime and those five players played every single minute. That's exhausting. Yeah. 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 They didn't, there was not a single substitution in the championship game, which, which did go into overtime. Um, There were substitutions on the other team, but there were no substitutions on Loyola's team. Um, Again, it's is he thinking more about himself and winning games, or is he thinking more about his players? Is he, I, I don't know. I, I do know that that team got really, really banged up, and 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 one of the players even mentioned to me, he's like, you know, the weird thing is we won a national championship, and yet none of us went on to have very significant pro careers, and you know, looking back on that, he said, I, I think. I think one of the reasons may be that we got really banged up in college. We really got banged up playing for Loyola. Um, that may have had something to do with the fact that they had, they had pretty short careers beyond college. It, that's hard to say. It's impossible to say for sure. But um, yeah, it's, um, it's funny when I started making movies and when Christine was, when Christine and I sort of began this years ago, I sort of, um, I sort of had this idea that um, you know, if you spend long, if you spend enough time telling a story, that you can answer all the questions, and that that the story will have a, a nice, tidy conclusion when it's all over, um, because there's always answers to questions. And this story, the Loyola Project, there are certain things we're never going to know. There's there's certain things you just you just don't have an answer to, and in a way. I think that's why I like this story so much. It's there's something kind of haunting about this story and some of the decisions that were made Um, as far as who won, you know, who won the championship and, you know, the X's and O's of the story that, that you can, that you can figure out those, those, those questions have been answered, but so much of the subtext of this story 
will never be answered. And, and I think in a way that sort of speaks to the complexity of race relations and the complexity of, 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 of what is happening in our American culture today. We, 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 we are this great melting pot um, and yet, and yet we struggle with, with accepting people who are different from us. Um, and it's, it's, it's a constant struggle. And it's, it's, I think it's one of the reasons why the film turned out to be so timely and, and why, why so many people want to see the film, uh, because it, it, it happened a long time ago and yet it's still happening every day today. Absolutely. I love the film. And again, listeners, if you would like to see it, reach out to me and we will make sure to get you that link. So Patrick, what is next for you? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, I So this was my eighth film that I directed. Um, Christine has produced probably 20 films. She's produced all the films that I've made. And then she's also produced a bunch of films um, over the last few years with other directors. She did the Taylor Swift documentary on Netflix, which is called Miss Americana. Um, she did the Brooke Shields documentary, which is on Hulu right now. That was also a great film. Um, she So, you know, she's been very, very busy. You know, we both have been um, with different projects and different stories. Um as far as me right now, we're, we're developing a story uh, right now. It's another sports story. I, I don't want to tell too much about that right yet, but um, we're developing that. We're also t- doing a, <clears throat> we're developing a story about the early days of, of rock and roll. Um, <clears throat> and specifically like this group of people who figured out how to take bands out on the road and do big arena concerts and stuff. And, and that's been really fun. I think that's going to be a great project as well. Um, but you know what? We've been really busy. Um, we've been really busy with the Loyola Project. It, it came out a year ago and the tour has been taking the film around the country. I've gone to a lot of those screenings and traveled with the film quite a bit. So I'm I'm really busy. I'm still busy with the Loyola Project and, and happy to be doing it because, uh, you know, we're here we are 2023 and 38 different states in the country um, are trying to pass laws which would limit what kinds of books and what kind of movies you can show on at at state funded schools. You know, there's, there's legislation about um, the the governor of Florida calls it like woke education. Uh, And the idea is that, that they want to limit, lessons and curriculum that makes some people feel uncomfortable. Um, it's a crazy idea, if you ask me, because there's a lot of things in our history that that should make people uncomfortable. But it, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. It, it, it doesn't mean that it's not an opportunity to learn and do better. Um, and yet there are there are there are there are people and there are institutions that want to limit the kinds of stories that are taught today. It's, it's, it's chilling, you know, it really sort of um, scares you a little bit. Cause I just, you know, last time I checked, this was America and <laughs> we have freedom of speech and we have, and that education is something we cherish and hold dear to our hearts. And there's, there are now people who want to limit certain things that can be taught and can't be taught. It's really crazy. So no, the time, the time that we're spending with the Loyola project and touring the film, I think is time well spent. And I'm, I'm really happy to be engaged with that now. I think you hit on a really important point, which is when you learn about certain topics like slavery or the civil rights movement, it's supposed to make you uncomfortable because when you're mm. uncomfortable, that is where change happens because you don't want it to continue but if you're taking that away and not allowing that to be taught people don't realize how uncomfortable it really is and why it's not okay and how to do better i am a grandchild of two holocaust survivors what is happening right now is absolutely terrifying um limiting books around the holocaust teaching this mass genocide because it didn't even happen a hundred years ago and we're not allowing it to be taught same with the civil rights and it's just we live in a very scary time which is why i think 
films like this are so important to be able to get people to see and realize and hopefully they're inspired to stand up and do better and do the right thing regardless of what people may or may not say about them yeah i mean it's it's one of the reasons we love doing what we do it's it's um you know we have a unique privilege that we get to spend a year or two doing a really deep dive on a story and 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 making a film that's not just educational but you know we we also want our films to be really entertaining we we want people to sit down with a big bucket of popcorn and a mountain dew or a diet coke whatever your choice is and get sort of taken away get swept up in a story that happened five years ago or happened 60 years ago um I love documentary films and I love that, you know, I, th- I think that more often than not, the best stories are the stories that actually happened. Um, that's, that's part of the reason why we just love what we do. Well, thank you so much. Next time when you have another film, I hope you come on. I'm a big music person. So this <laughs> rock and roll one definitely grabbed my attention. I would be curious to learn more about it when it's ready. But I end every episode with the final three questions. And the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would that be? Don't be afraid to fail. The second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? <laughs> I would say my wedding day. Pretty pretty fabulous. Um, marrying the woman I love and, and um, being surrounded by friends and family, you know, that was really... A special day. The only thing is our kids weren't there. So <clears throat> they, they probably would like it to maybe be later on uh, more recently. But um, yeah, our wedding day was pretty fabulous. And then the final question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, what song would you pick? I would say Harbor Coat by R.E.M. It was the first song on their second album. Uh, it just it just kicks ass um it's just it's it it's a really kind of hard rocking song rem has always been my um creative heroes um they did great work um they shared everything creatively they shared their credits their songwriting credits they were great live they believed in something uh so i love that band and i love that song and um yeah this has been a lot of fun so thank you so much mallory Yeah, of course. And I'm going to go ahead and add that to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify so listeners can hear your theme song along with everyone else's. Terrific. Patrick, thank you again so much. Thank you. I had a great time.